The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, welcome everybody to Paul Rudy's On the Money. I'm glad to be here today. It's warming up a little bit. I have my usual great guest, Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, welcome. Good to be back again. I have uh, Daniel Rudy, who's a registered uh, retirement income certified professional. See, I got that right. You guys have all these, you guys have more degrees than a thermometer. Good morning. Good morning, Daniel. He works with us at Rudy Wealth as well. And I have Ryan Repko, who's a financial advisor with Rudy Wealth as well. Ryan, good morning. Good morning. You can call with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us at the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 351-5357. You can also email your questions to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own due diligence. Always good advice. Uh, we're here just to educate. We're not here really <clears throat> to tell people exactly what to do with their money, just in general terms, and more from an education standpoint. And uh, so we're always happy to do that. But remember, talk to your own advisor first. And uh, again, we don't give tax advice either, but we may talk about taxation and things like that, but it's general in sense, at least we try to be. So welcome everybody. And uh, Fred, uh, boy, I tell you, like you yeah. said, if you were trying to time this market, it'd be a little bit tough. I have to do it by the hour instead of by the uh, <laughs> week or the month of the year. I mean, literally uh, any given day now, you're up four or 500 points or down four or 500 points, depending yeah. on who says what about predominantly it's the trade war uh, talks. Uh, you know, every time we had 11% correction going down into early January, we've had several attempts to for the market to recoup those losses. And, uh, you know, but every time it gets clobbered, the minute somebody says anything about trade wars. Yeah, it seems like trade, the, uh, I should uh, say. the administration usually says something that's uh, inflammatory. Then the next day they say they're really not as serious as they uh, seem to be, and then it goes up and down and up and down. Yesterday, I guess we had the scandal, the uh, investigation of the uh, lawyers' offices that uh, wrecked the, the day. It was up uh, considerably, then right at the end, it uh, tanked off. Now it's back up again. And one of the long-term uh, indicators, it's not uncommon for financial people to talk about, is you know they'll follow a 200-day moving average. It's kind of like smoothing out the last couple hundred days, and is the market above it or below it? Is it uptrending or downtrending? And for the first time in 400 days, the stock market value, uh, the Dow Jones Industrial, the S&P 500, went below it, and everybody started getting really worried about it. But when you really dig into the data, that's not how bear markets start right. um, uh, from an historical perspective, I should say. Uh, it really, they tend to portend actually more strength coming because it really what it says is, hey, we've had this really long, you know, yeah. that probably means something. Uh, so as it turns out, when I went, I went back and looked at the data going back to uh, about 50 or 60 years, and it seems like the returns after these long streaks of going 400 days without breaking that 200-day moving average, uh, actually the returns have been exceptionally strong. I mean, that doesn't mean they have to be, but it certainly doesn't uh, mean anything necessarily. It's hard to draw any conclusions of just being negative about it. And uh, of course, we've all seen that volatility, uh, that's spiked quite a bit. In fact, the last two months have been one of the most volatile periods in the past decade. And uh, boy, don't we know it. I mean, right. it, 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 and of course, it's magnified because last year, uh, I think there were, there were fewer than 10 days where we had a 1% drift in the stock market, the broad U.S. market. And this year we've had 25 or more, probably now today, uh, 26 or 27. And uh, on a trailing 60-day basis, so if you kind of look at it in blocks of a couple months at a time, it's the highest volatility or fluctuation since 2009. Yeah. And remember what that looked like. So yeah. that sure seems to, it's making its impact this year. Right. And it's sort of, that's sort of what makes the market. There are some people, the economist Robert Schiller and some of his followers think the market is overvalued, but then there's also evidence that uh, individuals actually aren't uh, in a speculative kind of craze now. That Some uh, 
uh, active investors actually are backing off now and the market's still holding up. So it's kind of a situation where most most markets are, where some people think it's going to go up and some people think it's going to go down. Yeah, if, you know, we've been hearing for some time the stock market's overvalued, and as you mentioned it, a lot of, a lot of the people suggesting that are using that Robert Schiller's CAPE index, which yeah. is a 10-year index. But I know some really, really bright people around the country that have written some, some pretty fantastic articles that basically kind of take that CAPE index, sure. you know, that measurement away. Well, he's always... Uh, it's like a, a, a someone at the at the uh, carnival making a prediction. It's always not that it's going to happen any certain time. It may happen sometime in the future, and it probably will happen sometime in the future. Yeah, it's just interesting, though. Uh, I, you know, I tend to look more, and it's not perfect either. I mean, uh, there is no perfect indicator, obviously. But suddenly, you know, when the market was down the last couple of days, last week, if you look at the forward price to earnings ratio, it's closer to 16 times earnings. And from an historical perspective, and from a lo- in a low interest rate environment, which we're still in, I hardly, I personally can't call that an overvalued market. Potentially, mm. potentially undervalued still. But we'll see. Interest rates are ticking up. Uh, you know that competes with the stock market a little bit. I was I was actually thinking about that probably at three in the morning about a way to try to think about it. I don't know that I've done it yet. Explain why higher interest rates how it competes with stock returns. Well, it's because uh, when you buy bonds or lend your money to yeah. great companies uh, and your interest rate now is higher, you're getting compensated more for probably no more risk uh, as far as getting paid back, as far as unpredictability. And so the stock market investors, if they want to be in, induced to buy shares in those companies instead of lending them money, saying, wait a minute, you know, if, if bondholders are getting paid yep. more and they're not taking on any uncertainty, we still have just as much uncertainty as ever. We need a premium to that. And the and, and only way to do that is really to discount stock prices. Right. In order, you have to give people more to the company so they right. get more of those earnings. But also, but, it's not just a question of uh, the direction. It's a question of when. I, um, I probably told the story That's why we before. have you here, Fred. <laughs> well, you are here for the when. <laughs> but uh, I went to a... Uh, uh, meeting an investment uh, people back in 2005, and the topic was the impending uh, crash of the bond market because interest rates were so low they could possibly go any lower. And 13 years later, right. uh, it hasn't yeah. happened. Yeah. But again, it may happen tomorrow. But uh, Well, we're uh, certainly starting to see signs of a Federal Reserve that's clearly they've tightened three or four times now. Or rate, I shouldn't yeah. say tightened. I should say they've raised interest rates yeah. on, their, on their overnight Fed funds rate. Three or four times in the last oh eighteen months or so, maybe. Yeah. And that's years. a good sign. In another in another sense, it means they, uh, to the to the extent they know, they have some confidence in the economy. That the economy, they didn't raise it during the period when they thought the economy was shaky. So now they, they believe that it actually is uh, a situation where they need to pr- provide some uh, some guidance. And, and that's and I think that throws people, Fred. Uh, it's kind of like, well, wait, well, why are higher interest rates bad? Because if if the Fed is increasing interest rates, they believe that. Probably inflation might begin to kick up. That's not going to happen without a strong economy, and a strong economy is good for companies, and it's good for their earnings, and good right. for increased dividends. And so it's really somewhat of a positive sign. I think people freak out a little too much about rising interest right. rates. There's been a lot of lengthy periods of increasing interest rates where the stock market has done exceptionally well. And uh, but you're right, everybody's been uh, waiting for this, you know, the bond bubble to burst for at least a. A decade or more, as you said, 13 years probably at least, some of longer. And uh, clearly that's not happening. But when we look at the economy, Fred, uh, I just going through them quickly, unemployment, new all-time high, uh, high in February, hourly wage growth, highest growth in the past nine years. Demand is measured by retail sales, uh, made a new all-time high in November, but it grew at a at a year-over-year pace of about 2% recently. Housing starts for the highest level for the past 10 years just in January. Fell a little bit in February. And then you look at manufacturing, highest rate of growth in four years. And, of course, that's from a pretty low base. But, uh, you, you know, I, I do we think too much about – do we over – worry about this manufacturing thing intuitively we all think hey we have to be a manufacturing country but is that because we're anchored to the 50s and 60s when we were basically the only economy that wasn't bombed out we were kind of the only game in town from a manufacturing yeah. standpoint i think so it's also a, a kind of tangible manifestation of uh, of uh, the economy but uh, again uh the manufacturing sector isn't uh tanking its employment in the manufacturing sector we're manufacturing more than ever but we're doing it with fewer people 
just like the the Chinese are doing with fewer people. So it's, that's it's more mainly, a question of efficiency as opposed to. And, and uh, that is, is that mainly related uh, to automation? Sure. L largely. And, and technological change. But the same story happened uh, gradually over a, a couple centuries. Uh, uh, 200 some years ago, uh, 95, 97 percent of the people worked on farms to produce enough food to feed the country. Now we have two or three percent of the people uh, in agriculture uh, production, and we're producing more than ever. And why? Because of uh, of uh, all kinds of technological changes, uh, machinery, fertilizer, plants, uh, irrigation. So uh, we've had a huge loss in agri agricultural employment, but agriculture is as strong as ever. Yeah, and we're producing more than ever, yeah. uh, feeding the world, so to speak. Uh, you know, we are along with others. Right. Uh, we're not the only game in town, but certainly a strong now, There's one. always, a, 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 this time is different. So some people think, well, even though it happened in the, uh, with manufacturing in the old days, again, all kinds of stories, how many uh, telephone operators would it take to switch all the lines now, probably, right. uh, You'd take all the people in the world, right. it wouldn't be enough to do that. And we don't need those anymore because we have other ways of doing it. And that, so that's happened. But some people think, well, this time it's different. It may be different in, in some ways in that it's affecting other people. It's affecting not just uh, low-income people, but higher-income people in terms of worldwide competition. So it's a, it may be a little bit different, but it's not fundamentally different. Do you, what's your take? Uh, Warren Buffett frequently says today's the best day to ever be born in America. Uh, do you share those sentiments, or do you have different views? Uh, sure, in terms of, uh, of the economy and, uh, and kind of uh, material wealth, I think it clearly is. I guess probably consumption and having uh, almost as everybody has what the richest people couldn't have had 100 years ago type of concept. Well, which is like uh, 20 or 30 years of extra life, which is well, that's pretty, a big one. pretty valuable. Uh, yeah, that, that's a big one. Uh, it's in our industry for financial planning and retirement planning. It's also becoming a little bit of a curse yeah. because, okay, if you're going to live an extra 10 years or longer compared to only a couple of decades ago or, or less, uh, does have financial planning implications for how long our money must last. But And also um, the, the quality of life in terms of, uh, of uh, hip replacements and the cataract surgery and things like that that aren't uh, – they don't prolong your life. They make your life a lot better. Yeah, I see that every day. Uh, after over 35 years, uh, you know, my clients that are in their 80s that are getting knee replacements, hip replacements, and it's really, you know, used to be without that. And even just all the, you know, uh, treatments they can do for heart and all these things that used to be debil debilitating years ago where, uh, you know, it's, you know it's, under, it's easy to understand why, you know, only a generation ago the average guy would die, you know, in their early 70s yeah. and uh you know was retired for three or four or five years and <laughs> you know fixed income worked under yeah. those environments but certainly a little more challenging today so you know I, st I stir it up and i i you know when i drive around this town sometimes and i think about compared to when i was a kid i moved here in 1967 at seven years old and you know uh, i think my children don't have any <laughs> concept of what this place used to look like yeah. when I was in high school. Well, if you look, at, look kid, at the, uh, the campus at the university. It's unrecognizable. It, which always kind of confuses me because all we hear about is the university doesn't have any money. I'm talking a broad brush here. But, you know, I think a lot of people are under the impression that, you know, the state's in trouble, yeah. the university doesn't get the funding it used to have, but yeah. <laughs> it looks materially different than it did when I used to play at the Plato Lab right. that Don Bitzer created. Uh, you know, in yeah. the in the early seventies. So anyway, I still think uh, optimism is yeah. the only worldview that's right. And the, the other thing too, which is uh, we've gotten used to it now, but we have really uh, extremely low unemployment rates. Four uh, percent uh, is or four point seven in Illinois is is very very low by by any standard. So we're probably not going to get much lower than that. But uh, being at that level is really amazing in some ways i i was in dallas a, a week or two ago and almost every store has a sign out saying uh we're looking for employees we're having employment fairs things of that sort and even here uh you know it's much much better than it was uh, two or three years ago yeah i think pretty much anybody who's capable of getting a job can get one right now it's just that i think that uh unfortunately for certain sectors of our population the the school the educational system has been such a disaster that they they're just so many people are unemployable yeah uh, i've talked to friends that are manufacturers and just you know even to work in manufacturing now you have to be able to do you know some math and uh you know critical thinking 
and uh, and their biggest challenge is you know because we've been pushing everybody to college so much everybody needs yeah. to go to college everybody needs to go to college that kind of like the good old trades yeah. and skills have been getting left. But there's behind. also I mean there, there's skills and there's also reliability. The other issue is getting people who are smart show up on and time show up and and pass the uh, mandatory tests. tests and so on. Yeah, I have a friend of mine owns a large paper uh, company, uh, and then I promise we'll move on to investing guys <laughs> uh, in, in financial planning and retirement planning, but. He said, boy, with, he really picks on the millennials, but he's a grouchy old guy like me, I suppose. He said, oh, I can get people to show up, and I can get smart people. I just can't get smart people that will show up. And I think there's a lot of that sentiment out there, yeah. sentiment that, uh, that that's the way. Well, Daniel Rudy, not to be outdone by your brothers, uh, David and Paul wrote some articles uh, from uh, that were published in Investopedia, which is kind of like one of the holy grails in our industry. You know, Investopedia is, is kind of like that's where you want to be published if you're a young person or old like me. And uh, his brothers, David and Paul, had written articles. I don't know if you, you hit one yet, Ryan? No. Oh, didn't mean to humiliate you there. <laughs> no, I just, I, you, I know you've been in some articles. And I just couldn't, rem I can't remember them all. You guys are, are frequently quoted in articles, but. Daniel wrote one uh, about millennials and investing. And, and, and even for millennials, uh, thinking about retirement is kind of a strange concept to them. But I always talk about it as those early dollars people invest are the powerful dollars. And I just read a great article, and I can't remember if it was Morgan Housel who, or whoever wrote, who wrote it, talked about Warren Buffett. And the reason Warren Buffett has all these 80 billions or whatever is he started basically in the third grade. And by the time he was in college, I think he had the equivalent today of $10 million in today's dollars. And how had he waited into his 20s, how he might only have a billion or two and barely make the billionaire list. And it's that, that power of starting early. I've always called it, uh, you know, it's your most powerful dollars to invest are when you're young. And I think it's hard for younger people uh, to kind of take that concept up. So Daniel, again, not to be outdone by your older brothers, you recently wrote an article for Investopedia that actually made their homepage for a few days. Uh, and that's usually a pretty good sign that they, they thought well of the article. Uh, but it was seven most important retirement savings tips for millennials. Now we've shared that on our Facebook and Twitter page and it's also posted in the media page of our website at rudywealth.com. So let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, what drove you to even write that? Um, we don't win, I, the word millennial and retirement don't seem to even be in the same sentence ever, but yet you wrote this article. No, and, uh, you know, I find that interesting because, you know, people my age, it's almost you have higher stakes because for for a person like me, I have a very, very long time. Right. You're, in your, you're in your mid-20s, just so people know. Right, mid-20s. So for me, I mean, I'm looking hopefully, I mean, at 50, 60 years of investing, right? And that's a long time. So if you don't start now and that compounds over 60 years that's a lot of money lost yeah. and um you know i think everyone talks about you know the the magic of compounding but nobody really understands well how does this work how well, how, think, how fast does it work i think one of the uh, areas that we struggle with most human beings struggle with is thinking about exponentiality I right. mean, it's, a, it's a it's a concept if you ask somebody to, to add eight plus eight plus eight plus eight eight plus eight, they can usually get there. Now, if I tell them to tell me what's eight times eight times eight times eight times eight times eight, uh, you're going to get a blank stare. So I think that maybe that's part of it. You know, we all hear about compounding, but it doesn't seem to resonate as much as it should. Is that kind of what your point on that is? Right, and and that's really just the beginning of it. I mean, obviously, me being a retirement planner, I mean, I have my own retirement plan, and I saw help helpful it was for me kind of to just get a grasp of the numbers like well here's kind of what I want to spend in retirement as of now you know things are going to change throughout my life but at least let's hone this in so I know how much I need to be saving what type of portfolio I need to be in because if you don't do those things now what if you wake up and you're 50 and you go well I would have liked to retire at 55 but doesn't look like I can those are big implications. You know? Right, and, and, and I suspect for people your age, in Ryan's age, uh, you might not even think about, maybe they should even quit calling it retirement savings. Maybe right. they ought to talk about uh, work optional <laughs> saving uh, to where, um, you know, today's 25-year-old in their mid-50s, they may be looking at another 20 or 30 years of choosing to work 
uh, but they may want optionality as opposed to retirement. And uh, so it really still applies. It'd be nice to have a five in front of your age and say, wow, I've done this, some of these things for quite a long time. How do I get to go do something that now is my passion that maybe I can make some money at it or maybe I can make good money, but maybe not a lot of money, but that's what I want to do. So it's having that optionality. But it's like, you know, for me, I, you know, everyone has goals and we always talk about these life goals for retirees, but people my age have the same thing. So why not start kind of honing in what, what are my goals throughout my life? Let's, let's start so you, pointing somewhere. You begin fencing it in, as right. I call it. It's kind of like whenever we're talking about whether it's with a 60-year-old, we're still thinking about 30 years potentially of planning. And even on the front end of that, I'll frequently say, look, let's take the pressure and the stress off what we're going to talk about today because we're sort of guessing here. But let's start fencing it in. So I like that concept. So what was your number one? Uh, and, and were they... Is your number one, is it by importance or just uh, not necessarily so? Uh, not necessarily so, because really the, the first one is just I was saying, let's get an idea of what compounding can do for you. And there's this rule called the rule of 72T, or not 72T, sorry. That's the I'm IRA thinking, exception. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking about IRAs here, but it's called the rule of 72. And it's a back of the envelope, envelope approximation, and it gives you an idea of how long it's going to take for your investment to double based on an interest rate. So what you do is take 72 and divide it by the interest rate. Or your rate of return. Or your rate of return that you think you're going to get. And then you can kind of fence in how fast your money will double. Now, that being said, I know you're probably going to jump all over this. Oh, I never there, do. I never there are a lot of times when obviously it's not going to cooperate perfectly. You know, if Let's say the S and P five hundred. It's it's returned about ten percent since nineteen twenty six. So you could imagine that your money would double if you invested in it seven in about roughly seven seven point two years, right? But obviously, there's time periods where that doesn't happen. But at least it gives you an idea of like. So you say on average over a lifetime, if you've earned a compounded ten percent rate of return, which has been the historical approximate return, practically rounded down, right uh, of of owning the biggest companies in America, on average, you would have doubled your money every seven years. Right. And the key word, the key two words are on average. Uh -huh. You know, that's kind of the effect you had, but not every seven years. Right. Okay. But, uh, you know, so let's say you're 29 and the average doubling is 7.2 years right. to be kind of exact. Well, that means your money would have doubled four times already in your lifetime. Right. That's kind of a lot when you think about it. It's back to the Warren Buffett you know, article I talked about. The fact that he started investing literally in third grade is a reason he has so many more billions today. It's not so much his decisions. They were obviously important, but it's the compounding of that initial wealth that he built is what really put it on the, put him on the map. Right. I use, it's usually kind of what you say. It, you know, you put in perspective when it's like, well, it's, it gets crazy when it goes... From 100 to 200, well, that's nice. 100 to 200,000 is yeah, interesting. That's interesting, but then it goes 200 to uh, 400, and then that 400 to 800, and then wait, kind of all in that of a sudden, same time frame. Right. And then all of a sudden, you're, you're looking at on the back end because you let it compound over all those years. You're looking at big numbers. So the earlier you get started, it gets that, that's, gets, gets back to my point. That's why those are the most powerful dollars you'll ever invest are your earliest dollars. Right. And then the second one, your number two, uh, I see is investing retirement savings in stocks or what I call the great companies of America and the world. Right. When you have a, I just want to kind of make sure we, okay. we take this right. I, it's retirement savings. So people are going to go, I can't believe, you know, you, you suggest 100% stock. Some people, that's fine, but it's for retirement. If it's for retirement and you're my age, it should be 100% stocks because you need that compounding over your lifetime. And bonds would be an irrational lifetime investment for mm -hmm. someone who's saving for maybe 40 or 50 years. Exactly. You need that return over your lifetime to keep up with inflation, keep up with taxes. And not only that, I mean, if you just saved and kept in cash over your lifetime, I've ran the numbers you're going to have to save astronomical amounts. Just well, you can't say, look, uh, the, the long-term returns of bonds over the last roughly 100 years, uh, just use corporate bonds after 
you know, inflation is about 3%, but after taxes and inflation, it's about one. It's going to be really hard. It's going to be difficult to look. The only reason we save is so that we can accumulate more purchasing power down the road. That's why we, that's why we forego spending today. And that's why we invest is obviously to me anyways, we're, we're trying to accomplish something. And typically it's purchase, building more purchasing power that we can enjoy down the road. Right. And, and bonds and cash aren't going to do that, never have, and probably never will. And just to be clear, you know, when you're investing, you should probably go with a low-cost, diversified mutual fund or an ETF. You know, you, you want to well, be as diversified ETF, as possible. Yeah, remember, you know, right. uh, we all sit around and know what ETF means. Don't I sound like a mean dad lecturing my son? <laughs> uh, we, you know, we have to be careful. Um, just to say, if we're going to say ETF, that stands for exchange-traded fund, which is basically the twin cousin of a mutual fund. Right. And I think one nice thing with this, too, I was just thinking because, you know, I have friends ask me, what should I do? I have this little amount of money because some funds won't allow you to invest unless you have a certain amount of money. But Usually that's not a problem in a 401k plan, right. but it can certainly be outside of that. But let's say you're doing it outside of that. I just wanted to give an example because sure. off the top of my head, but, you know, the, the Vanguard Total World ETF, that doesn't have, you know, any amount of like initial investment or anything like that. So it's a good starting point. And you could for go to a Schwab low cost. Yeah, or Charles Schwab and buy their S&P 500 index fund without any commissions, without any minimum. So compared to when I first got in this business or even 10 years ago, <clears throat> it's become so much easier for people that just have really modest amounts of money uh, to save, uh, it's really miraculous what's what's occurred, and I think that's a good thing. So there are options out there. That's why I I, I just wanted to mention that because you know I think some people are like, well, I don't have enough money I to invest right. right now. It's like, well, I could literally open an account at Vanguard for you and invest your hundred dollars that you have extra, you know, from your paycheck. And then one so, of the, and one of the things you I, I noticed uh, your number three was use tax advantaged accounts. Uh, so your next recommendation was actually invest in Roth IRAs and Roth four hundred one ks. I suppose you're saying, as opposed to maybe the traditional tax deferred uh, version of it, you know, use the tax free. And Ryan, you just recently wrote a blog about Roth IRAs, kind of all the ins and outs. We're going to get to that, and but I thought I might let you jump in on this. Um, why for young people <clears throat> typically focus and advise that they really seriously consider the Roth, which is the tax exempt version. You don't, you don't get the deduction for it on the front end. Uh, but if you, as long as you follow the rules, it becomes the earnings are end up being tax free and you can, you know, withdraw money from it tax free. Again, you have to follow the rules. Right. That, that's the advantage is if you have decades long of an investment time horizon, 20, 30, 40, maybe 50 years, like Daniel's saying, if you can let that money compound time and time again and double and double and double, all that money, provided you follow the rules, which we'll talk about, uh, will be tax-free. So instead of like a traditional IRA or a traditional 401k, where you're not paying uh, the taxes until you withdraw the money, in which case your, your account balance partially goes to the government, with a Roth account, you're receiving all of those dollars tax-free when you take that money out of the account. So it just gives you more money to spend at the end. Yeah, and, and one of the other things we'll probably talk about is, you know, if, if, you're, if you're afraid that, you know, you, maybe you haven't quite built your cash reserves up enough as a young person, and you need, certainly that's the f most important thing you can do before you start investing. But what's nice about a Roth IRA, uh, for example, is if you needed to get at your contributions, at least the amount you contributed, you can get to those without penalty. You're listening to Paul Rudy's On The Money Radio Show. I'm here with Daniel Rudy and financial advisor Ryan Repko, both from Rudy Wealth Management and, of course, Dr. Fred Gertz. And you can call in with your questions at 356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. So uh, going back to that, Daniel, um, you put kind of a set it and forget it mentality. You suggest that people, in your words, use the buy and hold approach uh, as your recommendation. And you know what I might say is it's the buy and buy and buy and buy and hold approach. Right. Uh, why is that so important? You know, I, I mean, we talk about this all the time, but especially at a young age, but at any time, market timing, it, it doesn't work. It's been proven over and over and over again. That, that doesn't work and 
And it's sort of irrelevant, isn't it? And I mean... You don't need to time the market. Ryan can chime in too. He's a little bit older than me, but sometimes I get questions even at my age like, well, is there is right now the right time to invest? And I'm like, well, do you have the money? Well, yeah, then it's the right time to invest. You have a 60-year time horizon. All this up and down, that's not going to hurt you. You need to look at the big picture. And, and I think the big picture is, look, if you're if this money belongs in the great companies of America and the world, uh, it belongs there before sundown today because if you just look at the sheer odds, the odds of it being prices being higher a year from now are about three out of four. Right. Uh, so that's pretty compelling. Now, we, we recognize that you could put it all in today and <clears throat> next week it's worth 10% less or 20% less. Impossible to know ahead of time, but you have to play the odds and the odds say, you know, for most of the situations, if it belongs in the ownership of the great companies, you do it today. And it's irrelevant if it goes down 10% next week if you're not pulling that money out for 30 or 40 years. So again, having that long-term perspective and what's the money for and when is it going to be needed, the short term is really irrelevant. Fred, you know, we sit here, uh, I won't put words in your mouth, I I do it frequently. I talk about the irrelevancy of short-term gyrations. But it always seems relevant to everybody's brain. What I just well, there's in all the you, all the decades you've been sitting by and watching yeah. people behave and investing yourself and watching people make these classic mistakes of not recognizing that look at the best idea is usually to do nothing. Right? Is this just an innate primal inability in your view? Uh, to just not look at today and say, "Wow, it's up 500 points," and it yeah. just it, to me, it's it's where where it's going to be five or ten years from now. I just can't. I, for the life of me, you and I've been at this a long time. Why does it ever? Ne- why does why do people never learn? Well, I think it's uh, behavior, which is kind of a uh, saying that's uh, human Primal. nature. That uh, again, if I had a lot to invest today uh, and put it in, and then three days from now, the market goes down by 20%. There's a lot of regret there. And you don't think about the long term, the uh, 20, 30, 40 years in the future. So there's no way to avoid that kind of uh, of, uh, of potential that you, you may uh, suffer something you'll really uh, regret right away. But again, in the long term, it's uh, pretty much irrelevant. Yeah. <clears throat> we talk about that, but I think people listening say, well, irrelevant to you, especially if I get uh, you know someone who's in their 70s or even 60s at times, they'll say, yes, but I don't have as much time as yeah. you do to recoup it. But I think, again, this is a, 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 this is a sense of proportionality and perspective. <clears throat> even a 60 or 70-year-old client may have a, a, two to three decades for things to play out, and usually that's a pretty good bet that better yeah. to not react, better to act, I mean, better to act than react. Act on a plan, don't react on an impulse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the boys and I have talked about this a lot, I, I'm just stunned that over my 35 years that there's still such a deep need for an excellent investment advisor in a person's lives. And it just, to me, it's just, I, I sum it up, it, it's primal, and I don't think it's something that changes, which makes me happy because, right. you know, thankfully, right. at least, you know, I'll yeah. always have a job. Maybe the boys yeah. will too, yeah. as long as they do everything like me. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. Let me uh, add one thing yeah, that sure. uh, uh, is <clears throat> obvious, but uh, maybe not obvious to everyone, and that is not just invest early but the more more you have early the better off so saving early even though it may be painful is really really important it's not just investing but the so if you have twice as much to invest early on you're going to have you know five times or something you know later on so the the, the five dollar lottie is more expensive to a, a 23 year old probably than a, a 60 year old oh of course yeah. and i think if people could think in terms of that what's what is this re, what is this five or six or seven dollar coffee as a 25 year old What's it really costing me in terms of what if I didn't spend it? You know, it's kind of like, well, what if I didn't? What's the unseen uh, that I'm missing? And I think that's part of the equation that doesn't. But you're right. You know, it is important, you know, Daniel and Ryan, uh, we always focus on starting early. But as Fred said, and we've done, we did a show on this one time about, uh, you know, lifestyle creep. The other important, it's equally important to me, the why was what Fred just said. It's the amount you're also saving is important for two reasons. Obviously, if you can double your money 
on average, historically, I'm not suggesting that's what's going to be the outcome in the future. Past performance is no indication of future results. Makes the regulators happy. Uh, you know, it keeps your lifestyle in check. <clears throat> and I think that's the part that really gets away from people. And that becomes the trap. It's, it's like it's the coin with two sides on it. High savers are naturally low spenders. Low spenders are naturally high savers, and those are the people. <clears throat> We're going to keep moving on that, Daniel. Um, keep costs low, you wrote. Uh, shouldn't surprise anybody listening to this show. Costs matter. Um, your thoughts on that? Really, I mean, what you can see <clears throat> from a lot of studies is that, you know, costs of mutual funds and your turn are in inversely correlated, right? right? Which really means that, okay, if they're charging 1% and you return, your return is 10% gross return. Well, now you have 9%. Right. Let's say you can get the same thing for 0.25%. <coughs> well, now you have, right. and your gross return is 10%, it's 9.75%. So you get to keep more of the return. And that's always a good thing. I think it, you know, just keep things simple. And so when it comes to our investments, you want to keep your costs low. I think what confuses people is advisors do charge for advice. And uh, I try to separate those two issues, obviously. Um, when we are investing for our, on behalf of our clients, we're using index or index like funds. But people do pay us, and I think they pay us, you know, reasonably well. Uh, I think that's a different cost structure because it's a different value structure. There's really no value in trying to pick stocks or pick winners, trying to ha handicap future relative performance based on past. So that's where you really want to drive your costs really low. That's what we do for our clients. And then there's the advice side, and that's the advice for potentially, you know, maybe if I have somebody to talk to about my financial situation and my life's financial situation, perhaps I can do better than I might on my own. Uh, and, and have a better outcome. So one of the values that's a, a separate value proposition for hiring a financial advisor is, are they going to make me maybe a better investor? Are they going to allow me to keep my cool, keep my head during those difficult times? Are they going to lend me their long-term historical perspective that allows me to behave properly and stay in the game? I think that's a different value proposition of either you know, hopefully increasing the client's returns a, a little bit more than they would uh, on their own, maybe decreasing mistakes that they might commonly make on their own, or you save them a, a lifetime of emotional uh, challenge and emotional uh, turmoil of second-guessing themselves <coughs> constantly. So I just I digressed on that a little bit because when we talk about fees, there's your investment fees, and then there's that, what's my advisor worth to me? And hopefully your advisor's worth, you know, it's way his or her weight in gold. But and to add one thing about fees, I think, for people who are maybe not necessarily aware, someone might say, oh, it's only a 1% fee for this fund. 1%, that's low. But yeah. really, in the investment world, and that's high. Yeah, you can get it for almost free anymore. Right. You, you can build a global portfolio for you know, two to three tenths of 1%. And, that, and a global, there's a, there's a higher cost to build a global portfolio because they're just, by their nature, there's a little more expensive areas to trade in, et cetera. So that's a good point. Now. Uh, Daniel, what, uh, we're not going to get to all of them because I want to get to Ryan's Roth side, but uh, people can go to our website at rudywealth.com, <clears throat> and I would encourage your children and grandchildren uh, to, to read those articles that the boys have written, and, uh, and then including the one we're going to talk about here in a minute, and you can get also on our uh, at Rudy Wealth Twitter feed and our Rudy Wealth uh, Facebook page. So shortly we'll be able to, on that TV, watch uh, Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> talk to Congress. So anyway, it's a great article. Uh, I was impressed that Investopedia picked it up, kept it on their homepage for a while. And that suggested to me that, um, and I guess it had quite a few people read it. I mean, into the thousands or you guys keep track of that. I don't. I saw 3000 last, but <clears throat> I'm trying not to, you know, put too much. Well, you keep your feet on the ground. Uh, keep my feet on the ground. Well, if, get he had, if he had more readers than his brothers did, he would, he'd know the exact number. That's yep. true. <laughs> so, uh, Ryan, tax day is almost upon us. Uh, we're running out of time to make the Roth or traditional IRA contributions, at least to make them count for 2017. Uh, I think we take it because we're financial people. We take it for granted that everybody knows the basic types, different types of retirement accounts. You know me, I like to back up and 
to make sure that everybody has a strong footing in the basics. So you wrote a uh, blog recently, what is a Roth IRA? Now, when we think about it, we all talk about Roth IRAs and traditionals and which one's better. But so many times people will, they won't say it because they're embarrassed perhaps, mm -hmm. but they'll say, I don't even know what a Roth IRA is. Uh, you can read Ryan's blog on our uh, webpage at RudyWealth.com in our social media area and we'll put a link on the Facebook Live. By the way, we are, I forgot to mention, we are on Facebook Live today. That would have been helpful on the front end. I'm sure your brother Paul's angry at me uh, for not saying that, but we do run the show now on Facebook Live, at least for, for remembering uh, going forward. Uh, so Ryan, what to start with that? What's a Roth IRA and, and, and compared to what? Sure. So I think what I'll do is I'll start with a traditional IRA. I think okay. more people have a, gr a ground in that. So for most folks, a uh, traditional IRA is allowing you to put money into an account, much like a 401k, where you're not paying the tax up front. And when you take the money out, let's say at retirement, that's when you pay the tax to the government. So it allows for uh, tax-free growth, and then you get taxed on the back end. So that, again, is a traditional IRA. Now, to contrast that, it's really just the inverse. A Roth IRA is the opposite. You pay the tax up front, so that way when you invest those dollars, provided you meet a few uh, rules, which we'll talk about, when you pull that money out of your Roth IRA, then there is zero tax of any kind. So it builds both the contributions and any income or interest or dividends 100% tax-free in a Roth IRA. And that's really as, as difficult as it needs to be. So <clears throat> that's really the essential difference is when do you want to pay your taxes? Precisely. Uh, today or now. And then really that probably uh, comes down to an arbitrage situation, which is a fancy way of saying, if I think I'm going to be in a much higher tax bracket down the road compared to today, I want to go with Roth mm -hmm. and then that's going to benefit me more. If I think I'm going to be in a much higher tax bracket this year than I will be down the road, then I'm going to look more towards the traditional. There's no perfect answer on this. We try to have a degree of reasonableness to this. Now, Daniel, you work with people that, you know, and even your friends that contribute to Roth IRAs. Uh, how much can people contribute? Uh, for people under 50, you can contribute 5,500 per year. And then once you're at 50 or over that, you get an additional 1,000 to contribute. So a total of 6,500. Okay. So that's kind of the limits there, but then there's also these income limits, Ryan. Uh, not everybody can just automatically do a Roth IRA. Right. Not everyone can, but uh, the vast majority of Americans probably will be able to qualify for contributing. Uh, you're given a limit in, in how much you can make in a year, and without getting overly complicated in U.S. tax law, the terminology is MAGI, and so the, the MAGI... Which is M-A-G-I. M-A-G-I. Modified a gross... Uh, adjusted income. Thank you for that recap. And um, I don't want to gloss over these terms because I know them. Right. I understand. Yeah. But the, the point of it is that you can make up to $189,000 in this modified adjusted gross income and still contribute to a Roth IRA before being started to be throttled back on how much you can contribute. So for practical purposes, most people, as you said, are right. probably going to qualify to be able to do that. And, and that numbers for a, a married filing joint household. Okay. So uh, a single household, still very high, you can have that MAGI amount of $120,000 a year as a single filer. So again, chances are you can contribute for most Americans. And we're talking about trying to contribute for 2017. We have a deadline coming up to this tax filing, but mm -hmm. then it doesn't mean you can't do two of them because you could do your 2018 early in the year as opposed to waiting until next April. It's not like we have to wait you know, until the year's over to do this. Right. That's, that's maybe a lesser known fact that you have up until tax day to essentially retroactively apply your contribution to either a traditional or a Roth to the previous tax year. So for this year, being the tax day is April 17th, 2018, I have up until April 17th to make a contribution for 2017. And so what it does is if you're maybe closer to retirement, it allows you to meet one of the rules that we'll be talking about here, that you have to have this money invested in a Roth IRA for five years before you can take it out. So let's talk about those withdrawal rules, because I think where there, where there is confusion, there's rules on who can do it, you know, who can invest in them. But then we have these, I wouldn't say they're sticky rules, but they're very specific rules on how to make sure that if you're trying to invest this money for tax-free status for a lifetime, uh, you have to follow some rules. Let's mm -hmm. get into that a little bit. So there's essentially two rules with a number of nuances. So rule one is what I just mentioned. 
if you're putting money into a Roth IRA, it has to be there for five tax years. Now, the nuance of that is that tax years is not calendar years. So as I just mentioned, you could make a, a contribution today and then have that apply for the tax year 2017. So you can cut off essentially one year of a calendar time and make it count for five tax years of contributions. So that way, once you've hit that five tax year limit, that's step one or the first hurdle that you have to get over to make sure it's a tax-free distribution of your money. Okay, so we've got to follow these rules. Of course. Otherwise, if you don't, I can explain in a moment how that might impact you. But let me get to the second okay. rule. Okay, that, that was rule number one. Keep us on track with the second rule being once, or assuming you've hit that five tax year requirement, then you have to make sure that the distribution is for a, a handful of different reasons. Again, making it a tax-free distribution. That would be being 59 and a half or older, which is the normal retirement age for pulling out your money in a, a Roth or a traditional IRA. Uh, you could pull your money out tax-free if it's attributed to the person being disabled uh, for a first-time home purchase up to $10,000. And then, of course, the death of the account owner with the proceeds being made to the beneficiary or estate. So if you meet any one of those four conditions and the money's been invested for five years, then it's a tax-free uh, distribution from your Roth IRA. So what happens if you don't meet one of those requirements. Let's say you don't have it in for five taxable years. One of the great things about a Roth IRA, like you alluded to earlier, is that you always have the ability to take out the contributions you put into a Roth IRA tax-free. Are custodians, do they track that? Uh, who, who has to track contributions versus, I think the custodians do a pretty good job these days of being able to track that. But you want it's one of the things you want to make sure you're do, as an investor is that you're able to put your hands on that data, whether the custodian where your IRA is at can provide it for you or maintain your own records, because you may have to prove that. And, and I think usually you have a tax form that you're showing the amount you've contributed, so your tax advisor, provided you have one, would be able to sure. probably assist too. Um, but that's just the important point to make. So um, once you've met those goals, those sorry, those rules, the distribution is tax-free. Um, if you take the money out before the five tax years and potentially you've rolled money from, a let's say, a 401k into an IRA, you're paying the taxes to roll that money from pre-tax to after-tax status. Okay, so that's a Roth conversion. It's a Roth conversion. Uh, <clears throat> the only caveat or the nuance there is if that money's not been in that Roth IRA for five years, you're going to pay a 10% penalty on that money because you've not had it sitting in for that five tax year requirement. So it's just an item to be aware of. Once you hit that five-year limit, then you're okay to pull it out with one of those other four requirements. Okay. And uh, what about as a tool? Uh, basically, a Roth IRA, <clears throat> uh, Roth account is just another tool in the arsenal, and mm -hmm. there's probably strategic ways to that make more sense for some people than others. Are there some, some of these tools you could talk about? Um, one or at thing, least strategies. A uh, strategy would be if, if you have a, um, for example, a 401k at work, put in your match and so you get the match from your company. Then if, given that, of course, that's a traditional 401k, maybe then you make a, a, a contribution in a Roth so that you're balancing out your tax-free and your taxable. So you might <clears throat> be able to do something at work. Maybe that's a traditional plan or at least the match always is. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to do some additional investing in IRAs, for example, then you might focus on the Roth. Right. So just, you get a balance. There's no exact right answer, but the, the good rule of thumb is that if you can get a balance, you're going to be better off because you'll have options of when you can potentially pull the money out and if it's tax-free. Yeah. So was it fair when you're, and Dan, you can feel free to weigh in on this, when we're talking to clients, uh, you know, usually by the time <clears throat> clients come to us, they've already been doing all these things and they're getting ready to retire. But I know with your friends and some of our younger clients, we do go over this. Um, when we're trying to make that decision, because you know, they're always going to ask you, well, which one am I better off doing? Uh, what's that come to? How do you, how do you get to that answer? Is that in the is that just done in year by year, or is that done in the context of a financial plan, which is generally always the best way to do it? It's best done in the in the context of a financial plan. Ideally, you'd have one in the first place. You know what the money is for and when it's going to be needed. And as as we preach and preach and preach, everything should be built around a plan. So and it, it can also be timing. <clears throat> one of the strategies we use a lot, or or, or, or frequently at least is uh, when 
clients retire, it's not unusual for the first three to five or seven years for them to be in a much lower tax bracket on the front end of retirement. Mm -hmm. And they could be in a zero to 10% tax bracket. It's not unusual. And we don't want to let that go to waste. So sometimes we'll even do Roth conversions on the front end of retirement and we'll do that at a very favorable uh, tax rate. And so there's a there's there's these rules about it. Uh, I think Roth IRAs and Roth 401ks are really compelling, it's particularly for young people. Uh, I think it's it, as you guys said, it's really the ultimate decision is when you're running your financial plan. You say, well, what if we do Roths? Here's what your outcome looks like. And then, well, what if we favor traditional side where we take the tax deduction on the front end? And then you're always measuring. You're saying, well, if we do that, this is based on our simulation. This is what your outcome is, and is that the desired outcome? And if it, if it moves the ball forward to use the Roth instead of the traditional, uh, sometimes we'll even say to young people, look, one year in your 401k, do the traditional, and the next year, every other year, you do the Roth. Uh, there's no exact science here, but certainly for young folks, that are in the front end of their career with much higher earning power probably decades down the road, I think it's safe to say we probably, you know, the majority of the time tell people your guys' age or in their 30s or even 40s, at least certainly 30s, to almost you can default uh, other than, you know, isolated incidents, uh, incidences um, to the Roth side of the equation. So, well, we got about another uh, couple minutes left, guys. Oh, go ahead, Ryan. You had one more. And one thing I just wanted to say is just a strategy we talked about earlier. Those early dollars are the most powerful dollars. One thing that parents, grandparents can do to help their kids is if their kids are young, let's say they're working their first jobs in high school or uh, maybe even college. Mowing lawns like I did. Exactly. <laughs> I did that same thing. Uh, but you can allow your kids to take the money that they make from their job and spend it and use it, and you could maybe make a match in that same amount of earned income up to the $5,500 limit in a 401k, or excuse me, in a IRA or Roth IRA. As long as they have that earned income. Precisely. And uh, and that's kind of a nice way to incentivize them to, yeah, it's fun. You're you're mowing lawns for a reason. You want to go out and buy some things. Um, But we also have to do some saving. And maybe the best way to teach that savings is to say, look, you can spend some of your money because I'm going to put money in a Roth IRA for you. Uh, And uh, that's kind of just a nice thing to do. I think it gets people saving. Well, we're about wrapped out of time. Dr. Fred Gertz, thanks for joining us today. And thanks for all of your contribution. And uh, Ryan Repko and Daniel Rudy, thanks for joining me on the show today. We'll be back in a couple of weeks after I get back from Florida. So <laughs> thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.